This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley and it is F-F-F-Friday, your new F-F-F-Fifth edition of the podcast. Uh, I'm now on Times Radio Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, which means we'll be bringing you the best of the show on the podcast right here. Uh, don't forget to get in touch and let me know where you're uh, listening. And a special hello to Jane, who's been in touch, saying I'm sitting in the hot tub overlooking the harbour on the Otago Peninsula in New Zealand. Listen to Red Box every day and I hope I can claim to be your most southern listener while maybe furthest south with no clothes on. Uh, so thank you for that, Jane. A bit too much information, but anyway, do get in touch. You can email me, matt.chorley at times.radio. Let me know where you're listening around the world and we can get you on the show to do our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? Uh, a cracking show on Times Radio today. We're kicking off our new Friday episode with a cracking special coming up on the art of the reshuffle. Keir Starmer's had a slightly tricky week, it has to be said, after his reshuffle at the weekend. So I've been speaking to people who've been there and done that and basically it's a collection of how uh, horribly wrong uh, reshuffles can go I speak to Alan Johnson and Ed Balls and Justin Greening and Ed Vasey and various number 10 advisors about what happens when reshuffles go wrong that's coming up but first it's the Economist panel and today we're joined by Alex Massey and Angela Epstein David Cameron's text messages revealed uh, this week. I am V-free, very much my favourite. And then he got an absolute shooing yesterday from Labour MP Siobhan McDonough. Do you not feel that you have demeaned yourself and your position by WhatsApping your way around Whitehall on the back of a fraudulent enterprise based on selling bonds of high-risk debt to unsuspecting investors? Well, my, my view is that... <laughs> <laughs> burble, 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 burble. What did you make of all this, Alex? Well, indeed, as you say, burble, burble, burble. Uh, I think the you know, the overriding takeaway, if you like, from, from this story is exactly what Siobhan McDonough was, was suggesting there, that there is something desperately undignified about Cameron's, situ- Cameron's position with, uh, with Lex Greensill, this, this sort of search for a role, and then in the absence of a role, um, uh, you know, as a former prime minister, essentially hawking himself out for for, for hire um, to then take advantage, obviously, of his connections uh, in Whitehall for the benefit of, in this instance, Lex Greensill, who doesn't appear to be a a character beyond reproach, shall we say? And it is undignified. There is clearly a problem for former prime ministers. They have, if you like, uh, lost an empire. And 
and struggle to find a role. But there are ways of doing it and ways of not doing it. Uh, Gordon Brown and Theresa May, for instance, it is quite difficult to imagine them engaging in this sort of behaviour. Yeah, that is uh, that is probably right. And Gordon Brown was very careful to sort of say this week when he was on Times Radio that there's a certain way for a former Prime Minister to behave. Angela, do you have any sympathy at all for David Cameron? All he was trying to do was just help out a fledgling small business and possibly earn £60 million. Pounds. Have you got any hankies there, Matt? Because I'm really struggling <laughs> I, with this bleeding heart. I'll have a look in the drawers if they can find a very small <laughs> violin. Yeah, exactly. No, bring the string quartet out. You might as well. Look, is it plausible that, that Cameron comes out and says that his only motivation was to help all these, these, these companies that were struggling to get access to finance, that he did know Greensill was struggling and that, you know, he was just operating in a bubble. This was the man who held the greatest office in the land. He does present a very plausible figure. He was groomed, he was considered, he was circumspect, um, and he was sort of, you know, he was believable in his vehement denial of knowing that Greensill was on the brink of some kind of collapse. But at best, that just suggests this is a man of breathtaking naivety um, to have not had any kind of sufficient due diligence before he uh, embarked on his association with them. And this was the man who was prime minister. Jeez. It, 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 I didn't say the us at the end because I know we're on the radio. He did. Uh, there is a slight risk, uh, Alex. That you, you, the question is basically, you're a, are you a crook or an idiot? And uh, that's, the, you know, that's essentially the two options that, that, that people are looking at when they come to David Cameron. There is a, a third possibility, which is that Cameron just sort of skates by and so on. You know, he, he accepts um, the cash from Les, Les, Les Greensill and so on, because on the grounds, you know, you know, well, how difficult can it be? You know, and, you know, I'm a decent fellow and people will understand that. Um, and, you know, it's not a major commitment. It's not like I'm having to, to spend, you know, 60 hours a week doing this and the money is pretty good. It would be foolish to turn it down, wouldn't it? Um, but again, Again, you, you just come back to the thing that it is also unseemly and undignified um, and, and utterly unnecessary. I mean, the, there are opportunities for former prime ministers to avoid getting themselves into this kind of situation. You know, you can devote yourself to, to worthy and charitable causes. Um, you know, you can, you know, there are alternatives. Um, you know, I think one can understand that it's quite difficult to go from a situation where you are the, the deciding person at the very centre of things to this sort of post office life where you are a has-been and you miss the limelight, you miss the thrill, the adrenaline of it all, of, of the action, of being in the arena. But, but you know, that, that makes it all the more important, it seems to me, that, that you exercise a degree of judgment with regard to the things you do get involved with. Uh, it, it sort of strike uh, me watching the select committee hearing yesterday with David Cameron that actually these select committees have got quite good. I mean, I remember years ago sitting through these endless things and senior people wouldn't come to them. They were chaired by government stooges and nothing really, you know, ever came out of them. And actually now, partly because the chairmen are uh, directly elected by MPs rather than picked by whips and the fact they, they become a sort of bigger part of the sort of constitution. Actually, there's something quite good, isn't there, about David Cameron being stuck in the stocks and uh, Siobhan McDonough and other hurling rotten veg at him. There's actually, that's part of the, 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 of the constitution working, Angela. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we you know, we always bang on about transparency and, and obviously Labour and, and other cheerleaders have, have been shrieking about the fact that this is a government subsumed by, by sleaze and inappropriate behaviour. And I know, obviously... Cameron is now post office. <laughs> Alex said that. I suddenly had an image of him behind the counter saying, Is he pension? I thought he was post office. <laughs> I actually Mrs. Had, Goggins. Know, <laughs> I 
Hey, stop showing your age, young man. Um, but, um, but the thing is that um, you know, so at least this is a government saying we are not we are not immune from slapping the bottoms of our own, um, and we're not trying to have any kind of cover up here. I mean, you, I take the point about select committees. Can I have a showbiz moment, Matt? Of course. Um, I, actually, I actually appeared before a select committee once. Okay, get up off the floor. <laughs> what I, um, were you discussing? I, well, hear hear this, young man. Um, so. I don't know if you'll remember, but back in 2009, um, Labour intru- well, introduced or offered um, a non-mandatory um, identification card scheme. So you could get an ID card if you wanted. It was 30 quid. It lasted 10 years. Um, and then it was subsequently junked by the, the next government. And um, I was one of the first takers of it because I just thought this is so convenient. Forget politics. Uh, I just thought it means I don't have to schlep my passport around with me wherever I go. So I got one and I was very sort of keen on it and wrote about it. So when the scheme was junked, there was a, a parliamentary select committee that, that took apart the scheme and discussed what, you know, what the point of it was. And I was asked to come and speak on behalf of uh, sort of, you know, in favour of ID cards. And it was a bit kind of bully boyish. And there were sort of chaps in stripy suits sneering at me a little bit and saying, well, you know, do you think in the wilds of Scotland, uh, they're even going to recognise what this is? And I just thought, this is so Victoria Wood. (laughs) I was so tempted to say, is it on the trolley? You know, just to kind of of throw the moment. So I think we have, you know, evolved since then. I mean, there was, I mean, your your sketch writer, Quentin Nets, has written a brilliant brilliant piece in today's times about it and about the, the, the shrieking and the jabbing and the finger pointing. But listen, we want transparency. And I think this is absolutely the way it's going. And, and, and I sort of applaud it for, for what it is. Alex, have you ever given evidence to a select committee? Uh, I have, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, well, got... In the House of Lords. Oh, not in the oh even, that's even um, posher. Uh, that's even oh. posher. <laughs> I know. I've been, what they say in Yiddish, I've been overschlogged. <laughs> <laughs> what were you giving evidence about, Alex? Well, so, yes, well the, House of, the House of Lords is all very civilised. And so on. there's a lot of, well, my good fellow, and so on, what do you think of this? And so on, or, you know, there is a view sometimes taken that, and would you agree that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, yeah, no, I've, I've, I've given evidence to the House of Lords Constitution Committee in the past. Um, in fact, maybe doing so again uh, next month um, on various Ooh. things to do with uh, the just... union um, and its future or lack thereof. Well, you just need to double check that Siobhan McDonough's not going to be on the, on the committee. That's the main thing you need to do. <laughs> Uh, just to complete the set, I have also given evidence to a select committee. <laughs> this is so rock and roll. Man. When this is I, seriously this, rock and roll. I tell you what, you don't get this anywhere else, do you? Yeah, I, it was it was when I was chairman of the press gallery, and it was about it was a committee of MPs was looking at the code of conduct for MPs, and they wanted us, and it, and it was all to do with you know um, investigations into MPs who breached the rules and that sort of thing. And I basically I felt like a I felt like a government minister. I was went basically to say repeatedly again and again, the press gallery has no view on that matter uh, the, 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 we basically took the view that it was up to MP we would report on them if they had some rules we'd report if they broke them basically we didn't want them setting rules for us and so we weren't going to get into the business of setting rules for them so I had a line to take yeah. which was basically and, and the more rule breaking the better frankly yes yeah. and if there's one thing that we've seen you know the only reason we know about David Cameron is because of the media uh, and because of the Sunday Times and the FT who've kept digging away at this and public spirited uh, people inside government who like leaking things uh, so, which is all to be 
be encouraged. Let's move away from David Cameron now. He's probably had quite enough of that. I'm sure I know he listened. But uh, I'm really interested to talk about something which actually has happened in uh, Scotland, in Glasgow. Direct action working. There was this um, sit-in. Campaigners have held this victory for Glaswegian solidarity and told the Home Office you messed with the wrong city. As two men detained by UK Immigration Enforcement were released back into their community after a day of protest. So Police Scotland intervened to free the men after a tense day-long standoff between immigration officials and hundreds of local residents who surrounded their van in a residential street on the south side of Glasgow uh, to stop the detention of the two men. So they, they, they let them go. Uh, These are our neighbours, let them go, they chanted, and it worked. This is just a sort of, you know, public-spirited Glasgow people in action, isn't it, Alex? Uh, well, yes, in certain respects, it, it, it is. I mean, you know, it, it is no secret, I think, that the Home Office is a dysfunctional department. Um, equally, it is no secret that its immigration enforcement, the so-called hostile environment, is often very unpopular um, and, and often leads to what are certainly perceived to be injustices and, in certain cases, undoubtedly are injustices. In this instance, um, the bit they, they appear to have detained and, uh, you know, prior to, to deportation, uh, a pair of, of Sikh men in Glasgow who have been in the United Kingdom for a decade, uh, albeit without leave to remain. And so on a purely technical legalistic matter, it would appear that the Home Office is doubtless within its rights to do this. Um, at the same time, equally obviously, there are plenty of people who, who are wondering, well, yes, there may be a technical case for uh, these, these, uh, these men's arrest and, and, and deportation, but in practical terms, you know, what harm are they doing now? And so on, after a decade in the country. Um, And there is this tension, obviously, between the idea of immigration enforcement, which at some fundamental level most people do actually agree with, you know, and the the detail and the specific cases of immigration enforcement, which frequently prove vastly more controversial, as was obviously the case in this instance. uh, And you had what was uh, largely a sort of impromptu um, protest that grew during the day, the, the Home Office van being surrounded by, you know, several hundred people and then police Scotland eventually taking the view that the greater threat to public order was allowing the Home Office to continue its detention of of these two men. That posed a a greater risk to to public safety than releasing them back into the community Uh, although you know obviously in in, in the longer term their status in in not just in Glasgow in Scotland in the United Kingdom must remain in doubt. Yeah Uh, Andrew is it it just a sign that sometimes you know peaceful quiet protest does work? Well uh, as we say in Manchester in terms of Alex, what he said. <laughs> Next. No, um, the fundamental point is, you know, how do you, how do you cope with the tension between what is manifestly lawless behaviour in terms of um, people in this country living here illegally and the method with which you address that? Now, what was interesting is that the, the Indian nationals who were, were being detained or by, the, uh, by the border agency apparently complied very nicely with officials. You know, they accepted it. And, and, um, but this is all about, about the, the way that the, the matter is deployed. This was in the middle of Eid. So it's at the centre of a, it's, it's at a moment when, uh, when the community is celebrating a very important part of their cultural calendar. So that's going to inflame tensions. There's the whole issue of the, the kind of the dawn raid element, which, which invests it with that added drama. But there is a serious point to be made about whether we want lawlessness to be the way 
forward in terms of dealing with a very thorny problem such as illegal immigration? And do we sort of play to mob rule making decisions about how things should be done? Yes, there are questions to be asked, as always, about the wisdom of, you know, the full might of the immigration enforcement um, officials going round to uh, a property where people have been living for 10 years. Are there not more sort of circumspect ways of doing that? Absolutely. But there is an issue of people living here illegally. And as we've seen with the asylum bill earlier in the week in the Queen's speech, um, we have to look at, and obviously this doesn't apply to, to these gentlemen, they've been here a long time, but we have to look at the fact that, you know, people are putting their lives in danger, coming over on dinghies, being exploited by ruthless smugglers. Um, and we have an issue about, about looking at the way we control our borders, letting people who are genuinely deserving and look at the ways that the system is being, as they say, exploited. And, and I've just, as soon as kind of mob rule is involved, yeah. um, I, I yeah, just, yeah. it switches me off, I'm afraid. It just switches me off. Yeah, I think that's probably the case with uh, with lots of people. Lovely to speak to you as ever. And Angela Epstein there and uh, Alex Massey. Alex, before I let you go, somebody's been in touch saying, I love listening to Times Radio, but I hope for the first time I hear the weather forecast includes Scotland. I know that lots of Scots listen to Times Radio, but it never gets mentioned in the weather. Alex, what's the weather like where you are? Uh, it is grey and cloudy, but there is not too much wind and it is dry. There we are. That's your weather so forecast. It's not bad. That's your weather forecast for Scotland. I have actually just looked it up. And uh, it, yeah, light cloud and gentle breeze today. And then Saturday and Sunday, you've got everything uh, black cloud, rain, and sun. So make of that what you will. That's why, we, yeah, something for everyone there, weather wise. Don't forget, you can read Alex Massey in the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London. Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Up next, it's the art of the reshuffle. Every day I'm shuffling. The government has around two dozen cabinet ministers who each run departments and then another 90 or so ministers working beneath them. The opposition has someone shadowing each post and an annoying trend of late, often creates new roles which shadow ministers who don't exist. And every so often, everyone gets moved about. But what is the point of a reshuffle? With so many egos at stake and moving parts, how can it ever go right? This is Kate Fall, who is David Cameron's Deputy Chief of Staff. Well, look, a reshuffle is supposed to speak to strengths, and it's supposed to be a sort of refreshing of people, but it's also supposed to tell a story, you know, who's in charge, who's, you know, what story you're trying to tell about the government, you know, what's the most important portfolio, who put that. But it's also, I mean, let's face it, it is an HR operation. It's about sort of promoting people and firing people and making sure you've got a diversity of talent. So it's it's really complicated. It, it can feel a bit like, you know, Game of Thrones, um, the board game. But most big reshuffles are, are, are months in the making and a small group of people get together and start planning and talking about them. But once you've got the reshuffle sorted, the next most important thing is the choreography because, of course, you, you can't give someone's job away and then to someone else until they know they've been stood down. The whole thing has to run incredibly smoothly. It has to speak to organised, efficient competency. And we just saw that with the Labour Party over the weekend. How, how 
how that spoke to you, a, a, a party, you know, unraveling, a lack of power, lack of direction. So choreography is the next most important part of it. Sometimes reshuffles are forced on leaders when a member of their team has had to resign, creating a vacancy. Other times it's an attempt to refresh the face of the party, give some other MPs hope of promotion and, yes, change the narrative after a difficult set of election results. Speed is of the essence. And once you're moving, there's no going back, according to former Labour Cabinet Minister Alan Johnson. I can't think of another kind of occupation where you're just told with, you know, sometimes a few hours notice that, that you're moving somewhere else. It's not like you get a, a go at it for a bit of a practice run or, you know, you're the Secretary of State designate for a little while. You've plunged straight in there. Sometimes, it never happened to me, but it's, I, I remember a colleague of mine had to go straight back to Parliament from 10 Downing Street and and go to the dispatch box and answer questions. And because it's a bit of a bear pit there and it's a blood sport, uh, you know, you're expected to know everything straight away. You don't get... There's no kind of sympathy for you on the opposition benches in particular. During a reshuffle, every leader has competing demands to improve representation while also balancing warring factions. For Margaret Thatcher, it was the wets and the dries. For Tony Blair, the Blairites and Brownites. In the Coalition, it was the Tories and the Lib Dems. And for Theresa May, it was Remainers and Leavers. And this week, Keir Starmer found himself pitched against the Corbynite faction on the left of the Labour Party, while also letting down those on the right. Here's Kate Fall again. You do need a diversity of talent, though, in, for example, a cabinet or shadow cabinet. You know, you need people good on telly, you need good policy minds, you need people from the north and the south, you need, you know, ethnic and you need women and men. And it has to has to be also, you know, from the right and the left. It needs to be a balance. Now, the cabinet secretary is the most senior civil servant in the country rather than a politician. And in that role, Gus O'Donnell saw many reshuffles carried out by Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron. He wants to tell me there's a small office just off the cabinet room used away from prying eyes. Mostly they're there. You, you need to make sure it's locked and you need to make sure that you can't have someone going in moving the names around, as it were. And in comes a whiteboard with magnets to write people's names on. Gabby Burton, who was David Cameron's press secretary, said that in 2010, as the coalition government was being put together, disaster struck. I remember this great big whiteboard being dragged in and the, all the names were put on and then, then all the names, for some reason, the magnetic thing stopped and, and all the names dropped off. We just went back to square one. I'm sure some people got different jobs. Kate Fall remembers this too. Definitely names dropped off. I mean, I remember seeing people I was sure were getting a job and suddenly disappear. During a government reshuffle, would-be ministers are brought into Downing Street. The most senior through the front door, others via the cabinet office. And they're left in a small waiting room just off the main entrance to number 10. Back in 2016, Katie Perrier had just become Director of Communications for Theresa May and was overseeing the release of who had got what job. And we had a, um, a moment when Boris did arrive and he said to me, you know what I've got, don't you? And I said, yes, but it's not for me to tell you or ask you or mention it. It's for the Prime Minister. So you just have to wait a little bit longer. Boris Johnson was then summoned to the Cabinet Room to be offered the job of Foreign Secretary before returning to a makeshift photographer's studio in a side office where portraits would be taken to mark the occasion. A slick operation, but not perfect. We had a funny moment where, um, well, it probably wasn't funny for George Osborne, George walked past to come in and one of the members of the team said, can you just repeat that? Philip Hammond is the new Chancellor. <laughs> and George heard it uh, as he walked past. 
and just gave me a wink, which was, don't worry, I know, you know, I know what's coming, don't worry about it. And, you know, very professionally kind of carried on walking and, and you know, went in to see the Prime Minister. And, you know, at that point, people got shouted out a bit to say, you know, keep your voice down. This is, you know, confidential until so it's that, announced. That was technically the point that George Osborne found yeah. out, was because he overheard someone in the yeah. corridor. Yeah, George Osborne got fired via someone shouting in the corridor. Even getting the right person can be tricky. Tony Blair, when making calls to MPs on the up, would often have to shout to those outside his office, known as the Den, to check what job they were supposed to be getting. On one occasion, the Downing Street switchboard lined up the Labour MP, Brian Donohoe, to speak to Tony Blair, who actually wanted to give a job to Bernard Donohue, a Labour peer. Instead, Tony Blair asked Brian Donohue, who'd stopped on the motorway hard shoulders to take the call, just what he thought about the state of politics. And Brian Donoghue apparently later praised his leader for taking the time to ring round colleagues during a busy reshuffle. Coalition government made things even more complicated in 2010 when two parties had to be managed. Ed Vasey was a Conservative MP and an ally of David Cameron. When the coalition government came about, I was minister in two departments. I was the minister for culture in the DCMS, but I was the minister for telecoms in the department of business. So I felt pretty proud of myself that I had this wide ranging brief. And I felt very, very important. And at my first meeting at the Department of Business, the head of something what was then called the UK Trade and Investment Body came up to me and he said, the Secretary of State, who at the time was Vince Cable, the Secretary of State has asked if you will be the acting trade minister. We haven't yet appointed a trade minister. A trade minister is normally somebody from business who's plonked into the House of Lords to do the job for a couple of years. We haven't appointed a trade minister. We would like you to be the trade minister. And I thought to myself, well, this is not surprising. I'm already in two departments. I'm a very busy person. Clearly, very senior ministers and the prime minister have full confidence in me to handle a wide and complex brief. And the official started to brief me on what would be required. And he briefed me for about five or 10 minutes. And this was before a ministerial meeting of all the new ministers. And then he suddenly looked horrified and said, I'm so sorry, I've been briefing the wrong minister, just as Ed Davey, the Liberal Democrat minister, sauntered into the room. So I do like to tell people that I was actually the trade minister for about 10 minutes, and I can put it on my CV, 2010 acting trade minister. I don't put in brackets for 10 minutes. And in fact, Ed Davey continued to stalk. Even my local paper managed to confuse us. You'd have thought my local paper, the Oxford Mail, would know who their local MP was. But when Ed Davey became the Energy Secretary, the Oxford Mail tweeted their congratulations to their local MP, Ed Vasey. But I haven't yet put uh, that I was the Energy Secretary for three minutes on my CV. (laughs) But should I be touting for jobs in the energy sector? That's obviously what I should be doing. They call me help. They call me Stacey. They call me help. It's not just politicians' names that can get into a tangle. Things can also go awry when a leader decides to rename jobs and departments. The weekend after the 2005 general election, Alan Johnson, who was then the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, got a call from Tony Blair asking him to take over a different cabinet brief. Tony talked me through, said, I'd like to be Secretary of State for DTI. I was delighted to go back there. I knew the department well. 
I chat you through. This is a Saturday conversation on the telephone, by the way. Uh, I'm at home. Uh, he talked through a couple of big issues. Nuclear new build. Every nuclear power station was coming to the end of its commission. It was a big issue. Talked that all through. Right at the end of the conversation, he said, Oh, Alan, um, we're changing the name of the department. I said, that's a shame. You know, we've had a Department of Trade and Industry for, what, 250 years. Um, I said, what are you changing it to? He said, you know, for the life of me, I can't remember. He said, but your principal private secretary will give you a call tomorrow. You know, ask him. He'll have all the details. So my principal private secretary, Matthew, rang me on the Sunday. I've got the phone in my hand by the door, sort of landline as it was then. Uh, not very mobile, not very many mobile phones. And I had a notepad and a pencil. And Matthew was chatting me through all these <clears throat> issues and what my diary looked like for next week and all that, because you're plunged straight in. And I said to him, oh, Matthew, the Prime Minister told me that we're changing the name of the department, but he couldn't remember what we're changing it to. Uh, can you tell me? It's, uh, Matthew says, it's the department um, for productivity, and I wrote down P on my pad with my pencil, energy, which in government was always a big E and a small N, industry, and science. Uh, I looked down at the pad. I said, Matthew, that makes me the Secretary of State for penis. And I swear, he said, yes, Minister. And it did feel like an episode from that or more likely the thick of it. Sometimes it only becomes clear that someone got the wrong job months, if not years, later. In 2010, David Cameron made Justin Greening his Transport Secretary. Both had publicly opposed the idea of a third runway at Heathrow when they were in opposition. But within a year, the decision hit some turbulence. David Cameron has personally put me in as Transport Secretary. And then he decides he's got totally the wrong position on Heathrow. <laughs> and, and, and therefore realises he's got totally the wrong person in as Transport Secretary. And I think it was one of those moments also when you really had this sense of almost politics being a game. And when his game was winning power, he could come up with things like no ifs, no buts, no third runway. But when, when it was more about putting people who were slavishly obedient in, in, in Cabinet. During any reshuffle, whether in government or opposition, it can be a nervous time for those waiting to find out if they've been promoted or fired. Ed Vasey again. Any minister, however insignificant, thinks greatness is about to be thrust upon them. I was in a relatively unique position in that I had a good relationship with the Prime Minister, but I also really enjoyed the job I was doing. And I wasn't actually, very few of your listeners will believe this, uh, very ambitious. Uh, and I always thought it was best to keep my head down. I always remember the story about, uh, I think it is Richard Luce, the Arts Minister under Margaret Thatcher, who allegedly stopped Willie Whitelaw in the corridor in just before a reshuffle and said... Um, could you let the Prime Minister know that I would like to stay in my job as Arts Minister? And Willie Whitelaw apparently replied, don't worry, she doesn't even know you're there. So I always followed the, <laughs> I always followed the philosophy of keeping my head down. And I started as a Parliamentary Undersecretary of State, which has the horrible acronym of PUS, which really is you are sort of ministerial PUS, it's in your title. And I sat there treading water for about two years because I was having a nice time. And eventually my ego got the better of me. And I thought, this is utterly ridiculous. I've got to get promoted, but I want to keep my job. So I did actually ring the prime minister and say, look, just for the next reshuffle, could you make me 
a minister of state, which he did. And it was a kind of conversation as, you know, God, I didn't realise you were still in the government. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely do that. But I definitely, I served four secretaries of state. And after the first one, Jeremy Hunt, I did think with every reshuffle, this is it. This is my moment that I am going to uh, be promoted to secretary of state uh, for culture. Um, I made a resolution after the fourth one, John Whittingdale was appointed, which really, I mean, I love John Whittingdale, but I really thought that was my moment. I said, I'm, if I'm not in the cabinet, uh the next time uh i'm going to resign and cameron was so determined not to have me in the cabinet that he actually called a brexit referendum and lost it so i eventually got sacked by theresa may ed balls was one of those waiting by the phone in may 2006 he'd only been an mp for a year but he'd spent years an advisor in the Treasury under Gordon Brown, often having big rows with Tony Blair. The reshuffle had been going for a good 24 hours and I'd had no contact. Nobody had called me. Uh, they were doing the cabinet jobs and I was going to be a junior minister, but maybe it wasn't my time. And suddenly, middle of the afternoon on a Friday, my secretary called through. She said, it's a Downing Street switchboard on the phone. And uh, I picked up the phone and a voice said, is that, Mr Ed Balls, this is the Downing Street switchboard. We have the Prime Minister on the line for you. And there was then a long delay. And then this voice said, hi, Ed, it's Tony. And it was Tony Blair. And he said, Ed, he said, I've been thinking very hard about how to use your particular skills and talents. And I would like you to go as a junior business minister to Northern Ireland. And there was this pause and I thought, Northern Ireland, I mean, that's just a catastrophe. We've got three young kids who would mean being based a lot of the time in Belfast. How would we cope? What was the vet going to say? But, you know, it was a reshuffle and I was being offered a job by the Prime Minister in the Northern Ireland office. And so I said, I said, Prime Minister, it would be a great honour to serve your government as a junior business minister in Northern Ireland. And I then paused and said, actually, Tony, if I'm honest, it's the job I've always wanted. And there was this long pause, silence. And then down the phone, I heard, ah, gotcha. Tony Blair laughed and said, don't worry, it's the treasury and hung up. And that's how I got my first ever job in a reshuffle as the economic secretary to the treasury. Not Northern Ireland. Most politicians are grateful to have a job at all, but not always. The best laid plans can fall apart, as Keir Starmer found this week, if the people in your team do not want the job on offer. Kate Fall again. Sometimes, you know, you offer a job to somebody and it's not what they want or they're very aggrieved about it or they feel it's not the job for them. And that is very stressful because when you're doing a reshuffle, you've got the cameras sitting outside. The people are coming up, you know, the, the people in number 10 are calling around, will you come and, and, and see the Prime Minister now? They know everybody's waiting to see what job they have. They, they've been pictured coming into the door 
and then everyone's waiting to see as they come out of the door what job they have. Now, if that stops going, that momentum stops, everybody knows there's a problem. And that it can have a domino effect because if a person doesn't take a job, then you have to think of a replacement pretty quick. Otherwise, the sort of, the sort of pile of cards fall over. I think, you know, once or twice we tried to bring, for example, Liam Fox back into government um, in a job that I think he felt wasn't senior enough for him. According to Alan Johnson, one way to know that things are going wrong is to ask the government drivers. The people who know what's happening, by the way, are always government car service drivers. So after the, I remember after the 2001 election, I was a junior minister waiting by the phone and all that. I'll always do the cabinet first. When George, the fabulous George, my driver came, who smoked roll-ups, came from Tooting, smoked roll-ups all the time and delivered the red box to my door. I opened the door. How are you doing, George? Yeah, fine. Uh, He said, uh, Robin Cook. Uh, is going to get sacked. I said, Robin Cook's going to get, he's foreign secretary. I said, I've been watching the news all day. He's, George said, well, he said, uh, Alf, his driver, took him to Downing Street at uh, two o'clock and it's now five o'clock and he's still there, which means he ain't happy. And sure enough, Robin Cook wasn't sacked, was demoted from foreign secretary to leader of the house. So, so government car service always no first. Good tip for journalists, go and ask the government car service what's happening. One of the most famous recent examples of someone refusing to move was in 2018 when Theresa May embarked on a reshuffle in which not one but two big name ministers said they would not budge. Jeremy Hunt wanted to stay as health secretary, rejecting the offer of a job swap with Greg Clark at business. And then Justin Greening, then the education secretary, was called into Downing Street, expecting that she would be asked to move too. I thought it was likely, mainly because other people she'd already asked to move had refused and she'd backed off and kept them. So I I knew that she clearly was going to have to dredge something from the reshuffle. But I also had already worked out exactly what I was going to do. So in a sense, I had a a game plan, um, which was unless I could stay at education, I was leaving Cabinet to continue working on social mobility. And what I then discovered is I walked in I had a game plan, but it was clear that, that the Prime Minister didn't because when I kind of said all oh, that's really kind of you to offer me another role in Cabinet, and that, you know, it was genuinely a, a sort of not at all heated debate, she seemed you know, completely taken aback that I actually meant that. Tense standoff in the cabinet room ensued, lasting some three hours. So I then wanted to at least give her some time to consider, rather than just simply, I'd made my my mind up and I knew what I thought was the right course of action, but I didn't want to just bounce her into it either. And so effectively that was the time she was taking um, in order to try and work through whether or not she could change her her mind on all of this and in the end um you know I had long discussions with Gavin Barwell it was clear that I think he just wanted to bring his very good mate Damien Heiss into the role which also didn't really seem like a a sort of great um strategic mindset to bring to 
who's in what role. Um, when you're in a perilous low low minority government situation, and and so in a sense, there was nothing that came out of that discussion that really changed my view that the right thing to do in those circumstances was to go to the back bench because my view was it, it showed how there was such weak decisioning going on in government that it was going to be very hard for me to succeed in the levelling up mission if, if you like, the, the wider architecture of government was so poor. In the end, Justin Greening did go to the back benches, although that wasn't the highlight of that reshuffle. That accolade goes to the moment that the Conservative Party press office tweeted, Congratulations to Chris Grayling following his appointment as Conservative Party chairman. Somebody at Tory HQ had been watching the telly and someone had said it might be Chris Grayling's Conservative Party chairman. And so they just tweeted it. It gives you insight into the dysfunctionality sometimes of political parties. The people in Conservative HQ were getting all their news about the Conservative Party from the telly. This tweet was only up for about 21 seconds. So even for Chris Grayling, 21 seconds wasn't actually long enough to muck anything up. The thing about reshuffles is for every person on the way up, there were far more overlooked or on the way out, meaning you may wonder why you even bothered. Let's hear again from Kate Fall, who is David Cameron's Deputy Chief of Staff, helped oversee many reshuffles. There's a, the, the difficulty of the minute you do have a reshuffle, you have the promoted, they're delighted. But the unpromoted and the people who are fired are then sitting on the back benches. And those are the people who over time begin to grumble and not really like what you're doing. So it is the disaffected can mount an opposition to their own party over time. And the big difference is that while going into a big job in government is exciting, being able to run a big government department, the reality for those being reshuffled this week by Keir Starmer or any leader of the opposition is that a job in the shadow cabinet is a lot of work with not much thanks. A final word from Alan Johnson. The thing that many people don't appreciate about shadow jobs is that they're nothing. People almost think that you've got a replicated treasury where the shadow chancellor sits with all the shadow civil servants. Of course, you've got some pokey room with nothing in it, no help or assistance to any degree, the level that the chancellor would get. So it's one big, fat, non-job. And the people who do those jobs are uh, you know, absolutely, absolutely heroic because there's no glory in it. And the least glorious job of all is leader of the opposition. Every day I'm shuffling. That's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing, 10 till 1, available on DAB, online, via smart speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories that we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.